Hey, Christian Humanist listeners, usually we start out with some music and then I thank you for downloading. I'm still going to do that this week, but we've got a special announcement. Because of some technical issues, we started recording before any royals got married, before any terrorists of any high acclaim were killed, and before we got a ton of feedback on the car DVD player <laughs> issue. Uh, Michael, you finally got a voice in your favor. Do you want to talk about it? I believe I've had several voices in my favor, actually. <laughs> That's debatable. <laughs> but the big issue is that later, quote unquote, later in the show, you are going to hear us say that no one has written in and that is now laughably false. So uh, this part is being recorded earlier than the part that's actually coming later. So my head hurts now. <laughs> not sure where I so, am. So all you time traveling CHP listeners out there, thank you for writing in. Keep writing in. And please continue to give us some feedback lead our dear friend Mr. Farmer to some reason and thank you again for downloading the Christian Humanist Podcast You're listening to the Christian Humanist Podcast your source for mostly civil discussions about theology, philosophy, literature and other things that human beings do well Join us each week for our conversations and visit our website at christianhumanist.org where you can email us, read our blog, and order merchandise paying homage to the most important Christian thinkers of the past two millennia. And now, the hosts of the Christian Humanist Podcast, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Farmer. Thanks for downloading another inspiring episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. This is the 49th episode. We're almost up on the big 5-0. I say inspiring, not because of my own contribution by any means, but because today's Subject matter is the wonderful English poet George Herbert. But before we get to that, I should introduce myself and welcome my co-hosts. I am Nathan Gilmore, the assistant professor of English at Emmanuel College with the face for radio and the voice for silent film. Joining <laughs> me from Athens, Georgia is Mr. Tolkien himself, uh, David Grubbs, graduate instructor of English. Uh, David, how are you doing today? Well, ready to inspire people, sir. Very good. And from until the near future, Christian Humanist Headquarters in Tallahassee, Florida, uh, Mr. Michael Farmer, the They're end of an era Michael has come. Yeah. The <laughs> <laughs> Other than being in a swamp, how are you doing, Michael? Oh, I'm pretty good. I'm done with uh, TCC. I, am, I guess I'm technically unemployed right now, so you could just introduce me as independent scholar, Michael Farmer. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, yeah, that, liter that, literary vagrant Michael Farmer, <laughs> regular well, vagrant, waiting for a professorship to start as <laughs> <laughs> waiting I, for a professorship to start is the best kind of unemployed. I think it's true. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> and I'm working harder than I have in years, so I'm not sure the degree to which you can really call me unemployed. I'm just not getting a paycheck. Fair enough. <laughs> Well, at any rate, before we get to George Herbert, we should do a little bit of housekeeping. First of all, on the blog, we've got the Bible post, we've got the links post, and Michael, by the time this airs, we will have an American literature post, yes? Yes, yes, we will. It's about the American inferiority complex of the early 19th century. Very good. And shortly after this episode airs, we should finally have that book review of Brian McLaren I've been promising. I have finished the book and started the review, so... Look to the blog, folks. It is christianhumanist.org. Uh, and as far as listener feedback goes, I do want to send out some thanks to Captain Thin. He maintains a blog uh, 
actually the blog's called Captain Thin, isn't it? Uh, in which he wrote on April 27th a very nice review of our podcast and our website. Uh, Captain Thin, we're glad to have you as a listener, and thank you very much for that review. Do you think that's his real name? Well, his real name's in the right margin. I just don't have it on my screen right now. Oh, I was just wondering if maybe he was born <laughs> Captain Thin. Yeah, I say Captain Thin. That's 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 what I say. Captain Trade. <laughs> But it reminds me, my wife and I don't take the interstate if we can help it. So we go visit my parents who live in middle Georgia. We take nothing but back roads. And um, <laughs> one of the, we, we always pass this road near Sylvester, Georgia called Captain Gay Road. Um, and then we laugh out loud. Because uh, you're 14 year old boys. I, I, I mean, I, I understand it's juvenile to laugh at, laugh at that street name, but. She she says she pictures a homosexual superhero. I just picture a really flamboyant pirate. Oh, wow. So basically a pirate. Yeah, that's true. There you go. Fair enough. No, Captain Thin, on the other hand, seems to have chosen uh, Melanchthon as his uh, as his uh, icon. So so that's that's kind of fun. Very good. Uh, at any rate, uh, before, like I said, we get to George Herbert, I also ought to note one more absence of listener feedback. So far, we have had no one chiming in on the in-car DVD players. Michael <laughs> Farmer, I, I hereby declare another round one uh, until somebody chimes in with a likewise condemnation. I fear that you are alone in the world, sir. What makes you think that they're all on your side just because they're not saying anything? <laughs> Why is your position the default position? Because I have declared it so. You can't make ex-cathedral pronouncements without me and Grubbs going along with it. <laughs> this isn't the Catholic Church. It's more like the Orthodox Church. Oh, man. Well, what, we have an ecumenical council every week? <laughs> Sweet. And we all have long beards. <laughs> I don't have a beard. Oh, man. Well, at any rate, on to Herbert, shall we? Uh, George Herbert is, of course, a 17th century English poet. Uh, He is one whose devotional poetry, in my mind, is some of the finest that the English language has produced. We're going to be reading three of his poems out loud today and discussing his larger corpus a bit. Uh, And so that we have a little bit of context before we dig into the verse, David, uh, could you give us the sophomore English introduction to George Herbert? Uh, What bits of background are going to give his poetry a good framework? Sure. Um, Starting off with his family, his dad was Lord of Cherbury, which um, is in Wales. Um, I'm not exactly sure what kind of lord he was whether he was like a baron or something lord of cherbury is all i could track down uh his dad was also uh uh, i think lord high sheriff of something or other which now makes me think of the sheriff of nottingham or something anyway um he was his family was kin by marriage uh to philip sydney um they were connected to uh, the family of the earls of pembroke which uh, Philip Sidney's uh, sister Mary married the Earl of Pembroke, so he's he's got he's got poets connected to the family, um, and uh, even though the the title did not go to George, it went to his older brother. Um, he was still politically involved. He was very briefly an MP, so 
uh, he a was magic it, point. Uh, no, uh, a member of parliament. But that that was hilarious, actually. Um, so he 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 was born into a, a family that had power and influence, and did himself actually uh, exercise some kind of power and influence um, governmentally uh, in his career. Um, he was educated at Cambridge, got a bachelor's and a master's, um, and while there, uh, was made reader in rhetoric and the university orator. So apparently he was known, uh, enough for eloquence at that time that I'm not really sure what the university orator does. Maybe he's the one who gives all the commencement speeches. That must be handy to have one in house. Um, <laughs> uh, and, uh, he wrote verse while in college and, uh, the artistic thing was also something he got from his family. His mother was uh, one of the patrons of John Donne, and uh, she patronized some other poets as well, not treated them like children, but gave them support. Um, anyway, we've talked about patronage before. <laughs> uh, the, the thing, though, about his life that I think most informs his poetry is that uh, he he – Stopped being an MP, and he gave up his university orator and reader and rhetoric and all of these other kinds of things that he could have done with his life, and he became a priest, a priest in the Church of England, and he became the rector at the parish church in Bimmerton, which probably isn't pronounced like Bimmerton, and like the English probably leave like – it's probably like Bimmerton or something. Anyway, <laughs> you know how the English are. It's uh, 75 miles away from London. Um, so it's, at least as far as I know, it's, it's kind of remote. Um, so this is, this is kind of like the guy who was at the top of his class, who served in government, who held all the positions in the department, um, going off to hold what doesn't look like a terribly prestigious position off in the middle of nowhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, he did not think of it that way, and we know this. Even though he only served three years on the job, he wrote what I think is is um, one of the best things I've ever read about being a pastor. It's a, a book entitled A Priest to the Temple or the Country Parson. And when you put those two things side by side, you, you recognize that while he's occupying the position that everyone else sees as country parson, George Herbert thinks of himself as a priest to the temple. Um, and when you, when you read that book, you get some ideas of, of just how much, uh, how highly he values the, uh, the office that he exercised um, as priest, how invested he was in um, being, a, being a resource to the community of bringing his, his best and most insightful um, uh, thinking and and writing to to the sermons, uh, he he writes a great deal about how much how much sermons, uh, how much needs to be invested in in the preaching aspect of of being a, a country person. Um, so if you if you put these things together, I think uh, Herbert's poetry um, fits into all of those things of a piece. He's got that poetic voice, um, which was probably developed through exposure to poetry 
um, from his mother's interests, uh, also developed while at college, but then channeled into um, the service of the church, quite literally. Not just of God, but of the church very very specifically as an institution. So, yeah. Anything else that you can think of? Uh, only to say that if our listeners, especially if they happen to be hosts of CWC, the radio show, want to hear about patronage, the Italian Renaissance episode is where to go. <laughs> David, do you know if Herbert ever harbored any dreams of being a uh, patronized poet, like doing that professionally? If he did, it would have. I, I guess it would have been in the period of life when he was in Cambridge. But I don't know a whole lot about about him in that period. Most of what I know about him is little is kind of the bits of bio that they tack on at the beginning of his works. Um, but if you read a if you read a priest to the temple, you get the idea that his highest ambition in life was to be the country parson, and he threw himself into it. Mm -hmm. Um, because he saw that as the highest calling. I mean, he's, he's an Anglican priest and he's emphatically Protestant, but he still has this very strong, this very strong concept of the preacher being Christ, um, to his congregation. And for him, what, what could be, what could be higher than that? Um, in fact, he was he was actually kind of uh, kind of diffident about his poetry. Uh, he passed it along to a friend. Um, the I can't remember the fellow's name, but he was he was the head of the the little getting sort of semi monastic community, little semi semi monastic Anglican uh, community called Little Gidding that I think Eliot wrote a poem about. I can't remember. He did. Yeah, it's, it's one okay. of the little right. mm -hmm. Okay. <laughs> Anyway, he, pa he passed the, the, the poems that we're going to be looking at today onto this guy and said, hey, if you think anybody will get any good out of them, publish them, otherwise chuck them. <laughs> it, it's so, interesting, I, David, because I would have thought that he viewed poetry as his first calling, and being a pastor mm -hmm. is kind of a corollary to that, because the, his book of poems is called The Temple, and, and the, the, the pastoral book, as you say, is called A Priest to the Temple. So I, I mean, mm -hmm. not knowing anything, I always just assumed that the uh, the prose book was kind of a companion piece to the poetry. Is that? It sounds like you're saying that's not the case. I don't think that is the case. I think that I think um, the temple is where he poetically fleshes out his ideas about what the church is and what what people are in the church, which is why he keeps bringing up architectural images and talking about. Um, Talking about Christians through the through the the notions of church architecture, but I don't want to give too much of the game away. Um, <laughs> you know, he, th these things are absolutely wedded. I don't think he was a frustrated poet who ended up, you know, earning his pittance as a parson. Though he would really have preferred something more swanky. Um, I think he was doing what he wanted to do, and and the temple is his private poetry during those experiences, um, you know, working out poetically ideas that you also see expressed in prose and more practically um, in, uh, in the Country Parson book. Anyway. And David, are, are, are there any um, collections of his sermons we could read, or, or uh, have those been lost to history? That I don't know. Um, I, would like, I would like to find that out. 
Uh, one interesting thing in in uh, the book, A Priest to the Temple, he specifically says that a preacher should write his own sermons because he will preach those the best. Mm-hmm. He well, there says was a- it's good to keep commentaries around. It's good to, to read other material, but you should do the work and preach your own. <laughs> well, at his so, time, I, the, I don't know. The Anglican Church was Say sending what? around a book of approved sermons for pastors to, to read. So, I mean, it would have mm. been very common not to write your own sermons. Well, appara- apparently he, he, he thought that that was not the way to go. <laughs> right. And that's why, incidentally, so many of the scientists and poets and other intellectuals of the period were also priests of England. Because they because could, they you know, sort of go on autopilot and spend all of their time on their other pursuits. Ah, that makes sense. Well, at any rate, David, thank you for that context. I should have mentioned this at the outset of the podcast, but if you want to pause the podcast right now and go to the show notes, Michael is going to put links to the poems that we're going to read out loud up on the podcast page, or on the blog page, pardon me. So, uh, after our listeners have done that... All right, welcome back from the pause. Uh, Michael, if you could, I'd like to dive right into the poetry now. Uh, Could you read the pulley for us? I will try. When God at first made man, having a glass of blessing standing by, let us, said he, pour on him all we can. Let the world's riches, which dispersed lie, contract into a span. So strength first made a way, then beauty flowed, then wisdom, honor, pleasure, when almost all was out, God made a stay, perceiving that alone of all his treasure, rest in the bottom lay. For if I should, said he, bestow this jewel also on my creature, he would adore my gifts instead of me, and rest in nature, not the God of nature, so both should losers be. Yet let him keep the rest, but keep them with repining restlessness. Let him be rich and weary, that at least, if goodness lead him not, yet weariness may toss him to my breast." Well, Michael, obviously I asked you to read this one because, you know, this idea of restlessness and the eternal striving forward is one of those themes that you have been fond of in in philosophy and theology as well as in literature. I mean, what's going on in this poem, I mean, that that points to that anxiety, as, as we moderns would call it? Right, he's, I mean, he's making a very obvious reference to the first book of Augustine's Confessions where he says that our uh, our hearts will be restless until they find rest in you. And it's a very existential concept as well. If you look at the Christian existentialist, if you look at Pascal, if you look at Kierkegaard, the rest of them, they tend to believe that we seek God because we have a lack in ourselves. There's some sort of nothingness in us that leads us to him for him to to uh to fill us up and uh and and that's what's going on here the idea is we have every blessing known to man what we don't have is the ability to be happy with them um and and Mm -hmm. so for that we have to seek god and and the reason we don't have that is because god was afraid that if he gave it to us we would uh be self-satisfied and smug and, and happy in ourselves without without the need for him Right, and that's that's one interesting bit about this is that, you know, like some readings of the Tower of Babel and other stories like that from Genesis, I mean, this almost seems to imply some sort of lack in the self-confidence of God. I mean, it's interesting, I mean, I you know, it's hard to say whether that was something that was posited of God by Herbert or whether he's doing, 
you know something a little bit more sidelong here. You know, I'm 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 inclined to go the sidelong way. D- David, what do you think about that? I keep thinking of uh, that bit. Uh, I believe it's in the Book of Hebrews where it talks about um, entering into God's rest and the the fact that there 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 remains a Sabbath rest um, to be attained. That um, that the that that the that the moments of of achievement in in salvation history. Um, even even up to our own point, have only been little rests pointing us to the fact that 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 the the final rest is not yet attained, and so uh, that that's what I heard when when I was uh, listening to to that word being repeated. I kept thinking about Hebrews, right? Anyway, and, and no, that's good. That's good. Uh, that's a good meditation on the word rest, I guess. And I mean, Michael, I, I'll kind of going into the question that I actually put in the show notes for you. I mean. This idea that God is intentionally withholding something lest adoration not be turned upon himself. I mean, it's almost Ovidian in its tension. You know, I mean, it, it's a very ambiguous thing to say about God. It's something that, you know, you wouldn't necessarily put in a sermon, let me put it that way. Yeah, you wouldn't want to uh, say it outright. Right, right. But in this poem, for some reason, it seems more fitting. Uh, I mean... What what do you think? I mean, George Herbert can add to a Christian's devotional life by doing these tricky little things that he does in his poems. Because I mean, this is definitely not the only one of the poems in the Temple that does these strange little, you know, almost borderline impious things with the character of God. Well, Nathan, there is a reference in this poem, a subtle reference to the uh, the Greek myth of. Pandora's box, where she op- as we all know, she opens the box and out comes all the uh, the terrible things in the world, and they're unleashed forever. And the last thing in the box is hope. That's the final gift given. Here you have that kind of in reverse, right? All these good things come out, and the last good thing stays in. Um, I, I think one thing it does is it tweaks the concept of God we might have. God is not unleashing all these terrible things on the world. He's unleashing instead good things on the world. So if you look at it that way, of course, it's very orthodox and, and not problematic mm-hmm. at all. <laughs> um, as for the lack in go- of God, or lack in God in this poem, excuse me, it, it is troubling if you try to analyze it at all. If you just read it as a poem, I, I, don't, I don't think it's a problem. So okay, and I'm I'm sure I'm sure Herbert knew that I'm sure he as you said this isn't the sort of thing you want to put in a sermon but it's okay to put it in the poem specifically because it doesn't make direct doctrinal statements. Herbert is not saying this okay. is actually what's happening. This is a poetic representation. As for all what right, it, can, all right. I I think in terms of what it can do for our devotional life, we're going to be helped much more if we look at what this poem says about ourselves rather than what it says about God. Meaning the reason we feel empty is because we're supposed to feel empty. Because without God, we're empty. Um, I, I, I think if, if we take this poem as a piece of anthropology rather than a piece of theology, I think we're going to be a lot better off. Right. And I mean, I would even say post-lapsarian theology, or post-lapsarian anthropology, pardon me. Right. And mm-hmm. and, and that's an interesting point, because the fall doesn't show up in here at all. It, it's almost as if God had created us almost fallen. And of course, there's a there's a stream of theology that, that 
suggest something very similar to that, right? The Felix Culpa and things like that. We were supposed to fall right. from the beginning, but I mean, you're right. you're right in pointing out there's no fall in this poem. Right, but I mean, I don't think you necessarily have to read the Felix Culpa or anything like that into it. So much as you, I mean, I personally take this poem as, you know, George Herbert sort of playing around a little bit with the Ovidian myth and, you know, saying, okay, can we glean something from it as Christians? The bad things that happen in the world happen not not as a result of God punishing us, but as, as a result of God wanting to pull us toward him. We have to, we have to use it as an excuse to seek him, right? Mm-hmm. Although I'm not sure if... Uh, Saying that to someone who's gone through bad things is going to be particularly effective. But for more... Well, more no, discussion- but this is... Yeah, I mean, this is Herbert's own devotion. So, I mean, right. it's not something that he would necessarily do as a counselor in a pastoral situation. So, right. Well, thank you, Michael, for the discussion of that. I'd like to move on to the second poem, though, so that we can keep an eye on time better than we've been doing recently. Uh, David, <laughs> if you would, uh, go ahead and read The Caller for us. The collar. I struck the board and cried, No more, I will abroad. What shall I ever sigh and pine? My lines in life are free, free as the road, loose as the wind, as large as store. Shall I be still in suit? Have I no harvest but a thorn to let me blood and not restore what I have lost with cordial fruit? Sure, there was wine before my sighs did dry it. There was corn before my tears did drown it. Is the year only lost to me? Have I no bays to crown it? No flowers, no garlands gay, all blasted, all wasted. Not so my heart, but there is fruit, and thou hast hands. Recover all thy sigh-blown age on double pleasures. Leave thy cold dispute of what is fit, and not forsake thy cage, thy rope of sands, which petty thoughts have made, and made to thee good cable to enforce and draw and be thy law while thou didst wink and wouldst not see away take heed i will abroad call in thy death's head there tie up thy fears he that forbears to suit and serve his need deserves his load but as i raved and grew more fierce and wild at every word methought i heard one calling child and i replied my lord Thank you, David. Now, I know that you've got some good things to say on this, so let me give you something stupid to respond to, and then you can say something smart. You know, on <laughs> one level, I mean, this sounds like, you know, a priest who is having a midlife crisis, but on his pension, he can't afford a new Mustang. Uh, certainly, there's more going on than that. Tell us a little bit about what's going on in this poem. Well, uh, for one thing, um, I don't uh, we, we've already talked about Herbert's biography. I don't think it would make biographical sense to look at it that way. He was only a minister for three years. <laughs> and he, uh, from from what we can tell, he put aside an awful lot of privilege, an awful lot of uh, potential fruit to be plucked, so to speak, both in, in terms of education and wealth and uh, family reputation and so forth. Uh, set that aside in order to be a country parson. So um, I, I don't know if the midlife crisis is precisely what's going on here. Um, one of the reasons why this is my favorite, though, is is because I think it's a very human, um, 
a, a very human kind of experience, the experience of uh, feeling for years as if one ought to be good, but not, not seeing um, what we very often think should be uh, the logical uh, outcome of that, namely God, you know, giving us the things we want and giving us the life that we want. Um, but instead, you know, very often, you know, if we think of God in those kinds of, uh, I don't know, uh, vending machine ways, uh, the, the, the moral capital that we might flatter ourselves as earning with our, um, you know, with our size and our tears and our, uh, our disciplines and our good behavior don't seem to be reaping all of these benefits. It doesn't seem that those things are being, uh, paid attention to by God. All right. So would you say that he's basically creating a persona here who's raging rather than this being a simple, you know, outflowing of powerful emotions recalled in tranquility? <laughs> yeah, I think definitely the former. Um, I think this is a persona, not necessarily a persona that's completely alien to Herbert. Um, I, I, I don't think he could express it so well if there isn't any of him in it. Mm -hmm. Um, but at the same time, he's smarter than this, uh, than this persona is through the bulk of the poem and the end of the poem shows us this. Okay. All right. Maybe not necessarily smarter, but he's been through it in a way that mm. the, uh, the speaker hasn't yet. Right. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. So, I mean, it's almost a psalmic pattern where, you know, it, it's being written in a persona who is in the moment of crisis and then right. arrives at a resolution to the crisis. Uh, well, go ahead. Well, well I, that's one of the reasons why I love it so much is because it reminds me of one of my favorite psalms. Um, that one being? Psalm 73, uh, Psalm of Asaph, uh, where he starts off by envying the arrogant and the prosperity of the wicked and concluding about halfway through the psalm that surely in vain I've kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been afflicted and every morning brings new punishment. And basically he's uh, the, 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 psalm, the, the persona of the psalmist in seeing that apparently the wicked do well in life. And, but he who, you know, who, th who thinks of himself as, uh, as righteous or at least as sincerely pursuing at great personal cost um, to please God. Uh, he he isn't in the position that that the wicked seem to be the position of prosperity and peace and um, comfort and so forth. Um, but that psalm also has a uh, a twist at the end, though the though the twist of Psalm seventy three comes in the middle, um, more like the Volta in the middle of a Petrarchan sonnet, whereas the collar has the twist at the very end, like um, well, like the couplet at the end of a Shakespearean sonnet. Right, right. <laughs> but that that twist is interesting to me because it's something I have identified on the blog in other contexts as an existential answer answer to these deep and uh, unsettling theological questions. So you think about the end of the book of Job. Mm -hmm. Job is compo composed mostly of complaints and accusations, and God's only answer is, I am God. And that, mm -hmm. seems to, that seems to be his answer here, too, except it's a, in a more relational way. I am God, and you are my child, and I am your master. 
but right. it doesn't answer any of his questions. It doesn't necessarily make any of that pain go away. All it does is uh, mm-hmm. all it does is put him in a in a proper position in relation to uh, to God. And I think those words are worth paying attention to too, because the the one calling does not say servant. <laughs> to which he replies, "My lord." That might make sense. That's like the appropriate response to, you know, appropriate call and response. It is. It isn't also child. And I replied, "My father." Mm-hmm. Um, instead, Herbert brings up these two different sets of relationship contexts in which we relate to God. Um, Emphasizing and, and, both transcendence and eminence, right? Right. Child would suggest eminence. Master would suggest transcendence. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, bo- both the intimacy, but also, you know, the embassy and f- intimacy and sort of familial uh, relationship, but also... Well, quite literally, that of of master and servant, um, and and especially the the fact that the the voice of God says "child" really does re uh, recontextualize all that comes before it. It's no longer, well, the midlife crisis, if you will, Nathan. It's now more <laughs> of the the why didn't I get cake tantrum, right? <laughs> Although in my experience, midlife crises are often of the same species as the "Why didn't I get cake?" <laughs> they, and, I, they just, and, uh, I, and I say that as the oldest of our trio. So, I <laughs> yeah. But you haven't bought your red convertible yet. No, I've already told my wife that uh, when I have my midlife crisis, if I have one, I'm going to buy an El Camino. <laughs> well, you know what? At, le- at least you know, avoid motorcycles. Oh, I, I'm frightened to death of motorcycles, so I'm not going to buy one of those. I'm just picturing you with long hair. <laughs> no, no, I'm, I'm telling you, about the time I hit 40, that's when they're going to release the El Camino Hybrid. I'm going to be uptown, boy. Nice. <laughs> anyway, to, to return to the lofty heights of poetry away from this silliness about El Camino's, uh, David, I do have a question I want to pose to you. I've heard largely from reformed folks, you know, the podcasts I listen to from that camp that, uh, one of the things that they long for is a time when preachers step up and be, and become more central to the intellectual and specifically theological life of the church. And I, mm-hmm. I like that thought. I really do. And I mean, uh, the idea here is, you know, that divinity schools and university religion professors have sort of monopolized the discipline of theology, and there needs to be a sort of, you know, for lack of a better phrase, a democratic uprising among actual pra- practicing pastors. Let me ask you this. I mean, uh, what do you think it would take for a generation of Duns and Herberts and Herricks to take poetry back from the universities to give a strong challenge to the MFA programs? Yeah, when you when you when you sent this question to me, it, it took a lot of. I, I I thought about it for a long time, a lot of different angles. Um, one thing that would happen to happen is that they would have to somehow undo what the Romantics did. Okay. Which was, uh, well, backtracking a little bit. Uh, if if you begin, you know, let, let's start, you know, all the way back at Homeric board, uh, Homeric verse. Oh, the, I, thought, I voice, thought you were naming some Norse poem. 
sorry, no, the Homer, Homeric verse. If you go all the way back there um, and then just continue through, um, poetry is a, a Vatic voice. It is a it is an oracular voice. There's There's been this, uh, you know, for time immemorial and cultures throughout the world, this association between <laughs> poetry and inspiration, right? And there I just started off my freshman essay. Yeah. <laughs> um, except in this case, it happens to be true. Well, well noted. <laughs> <laughs> um, the difference is, at least it seems to me, that when when Wordsworth and, you know, Wordsworth and Keats and Shelley and so forth, when they come along – Poetry remains for them a a prophetic voice, except they become prophets of themselves. Mm, okay. And you know they still had, uh, you know, particularly, you know, particularly Shelley still had a sort of high enough view of the natural world that he he hasn't his poetry isn't all about him. There 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 still seems to be. You know, a, a kind of transcendence that he is speaking to that isn't just all up inside of him. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I think in, in 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 some sense, even that passed away. And very often, at least what the you know, if I if I go to a poetry reading in Athens, um, what I hear is at least the way I hear it is it, it sounds an awful lot like oracular verse for the God of self, which oracular verse was, it was riddles. You, you had to, you had to decode it, but you decoded it in reference to this kind of higher divine reality, except our modern oracular verse <laughs> is, uh, well, it just sounds crazy because the, the reality that you would need to decode it is this single person's subjective reality. Um, and if you don't have access to it, then it's just crazy on a page. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, all, all that to say this, if, if we wanted a generation of Duns and Herberts and Herricks, we would need a generation of poets who saw poetry, who continued to see poetry in the, in that kind of prophetic sense, but not as prophets of self as speak, speaking to something higher. Hmm. Um, Another problem, I think, frankly, is that our contemporary culture tends to think of religion, particularly uh, familiar uh, religion, confessional religion, as kind of hokey. So, if you know, if if uh, I set out to write some confessional poetry, people in an MFA poet. Uh, program I think would might be inclined to see it as a uh, well you know kind of hokey and hallmark cardy and full of you know I don't know too familiar phrases and things of that nature mm-hmm. which I would see as illusions <laughs> right. I don't know am I, am I getting am I getting even close to answering this question oh honestly I, I have no idea what the answer is I threw it to you because yeah. I don't know how to answer it you know it's just one of those things that you know it's interesting you're looking at it from the the English department end I was thinking about it from the seminary end and to where seminary degrees to some extent but especially undergraduate ministry degrees I'm seeing more and more as management focused rather than intellectually focused 
Mm-hmm. And I mean, you know, oh, you're talking about bringing bringing poets into the seminary. Yeah. Oh, sure, sure. But I mean, I think that your angle, I mean, is the other side of that, and it's something that I hadn't considered when I was writing up the question. So I mean, you know, it, it's one of those things. I mean, it's kind of like our, you know, our periodic references to Christian Humanist University. You know, what would it take to do the university right? You know, this is sort of my, what would it take to do Christian poetry right? And I think you're absolutely right that you know, right now the especially the MFA culture and probably to some extent the sort of New York City book publishing culture would look askance at such things. And, you know, if you wanted right. to do Christian poetry, you know, you might be consigned to a, you know, family Christian bookstore, uh, you know, just to cite the chain. If you could find one that sells books. Well, yeah. I, <laughs> True. That would be a, a challenge in some cases. But, you know, I, I think that, you know, you're coming at it from that, from the university side of things. I mean, it's, it's perfectly valid what you're saying. Michael, would you add anything to this? Actually, I would add a question to you, Nathan, because you were the only one of us who currently teaches burgeoning pastors. And I'm wondering how they respond. Oh, sure, sure. How they tend, tend to respond to poetry in your classes. If you, if you don't mind painting a large and presumably diverse group of people with a single brush. No, quite all right. I mean, I, I have developed friendships with some of our, uh, see, you know, uh, SCM. There we go. I couldn't remember the order of the initials. Uh, School of Christian Ministry students here at Emmanuel. And one of the things I like most about uh, the group that I've come to be familiar with is that they have a curiosity about them and they have an appreciation for literate culture. Now, the fact that a number of them are dating English majors probably helps that. Uh, but you know, uh, I, I, looking at the ministry majors here at Emmanuel, I am hopeful and moreover in our online writing contest that I sponsor as director of composition culture, uh, I've gotten a number of poems from ministry majors. Uh, and I, and you know, that phenomenon along with the fact that in, while I was in seminary, uh, our seminary president who is a PhD in continental philosophy, uh, and, you know, taught philosophical theology courses. Uh, he would also craft his own Christmas card to send out to all students and alumni every year. And on that Christmas card would be his annual Christmas sonnet. Uh, nice. Just made me think, okay, you know, this is something that just seems right. And in fact, it goes beyond seeming right. You know, like I just said, I can articulate reasons why it should be right. And I can point to a span of history where it was right. Yeah, And I just think, okay, you know, this is something that isn't a pie-in-the-sky dream. This is something to which we could aspire right now. Yeah. Because I, I just remember at, at TFC, at my alma mater, the uh-huh. uh, the ministry majors tended to be quite hostile to humanities folks. Uh, okay, say more. They, I, I remember hearing several times that, I, I think I've talked about this on the show before, uh, that, mm. that they should just shut down all the departments other than the ministry departments. Uh, oh, wow. I mean, this was not a universally held opinion, and I don't want to make it sound like it was, uh-huh. but it was a popular opinion, and, and I was just wondering if, if that is something universal to Christian colleges or specific to TFC, so let's hope it's not that way at Crown. Yeah, I, I, I don't know if it's specific to TFC, but I do remember when I was an undergrad at Milligan in the mid to late 90s, I was the only philosophy major who is not also a ministry major well that is so, i mean that you know, is hope hope inducing yeah yeah 
Well, at any rate, um, again, trying to keep an eye on time because I know we've been recording some long episodes and I know you, our audience are a good and faithful audience and you're going to stick with us, but I shouldn't make you every time. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and read my poem here. Uh, and my poem is the H scriptures Two. Uh, I'm just assuming that that stands for Holy scriptures and here's how it goes. Oh, that I knew how all thy lights combine and the configurations of their glory, seeing not only how each verse doth shine, but all the constellations of the story. This first marks that, and both do make a motion unto a third, that ten leaves off doth lie. Then, as dispersed herbs do watch a potion, these three make up some Christian's destiny. Such are thy secrets which make which my life makes good and comments on thee for everything thy words do find me out and parallels bring and in another make me understood stars are poor books and oftentimes do miss this book of stars lights to eternal bliss mm. and you know i you know as someone who has you know written papers and a master's thesis on the Bible and who, you know, teaches Sunday school every Sunday and who preaches on occasion, you know, this poem just as a commentary on the phenomenon of living with the Bible just struck me as very, very insightful. I mean, this idea that, and I, and, you know, when you get over into lines, oh, five through eight, roughly speaking, I've had, I've had, I've had people in conversation interpret this as sort of proof texting that, you know, uh, you've got, you know, this preacher who's picking a verse here, a, a verse, a verse there, a verse there, you know, 10 pages apart and sort of, you know, patching them together into whatever point he wants to make. But I suppose I interpret this as, you know, this is reading through the gospel of Mark and realizing that what you've got going on there is happening in a different key over in the first letter to the Thessalonians. And then something else is an echo of what you see in Isaiah and something else still is, you know, a direct quotation from, Daniel taking it taken into an entirely new realm of meaning because it's actually a living person walking around on earth. And I mean, just this, this idea that scripture happens not in atomized stars, but in constellations just rings true to me. Um, uh, what, what do you guys think? I'm, I'm, I'm lecturing rather than asking questions here, but I mean, what, what do you guys see in this poem? I think it's brilliantly expressed. Um, last night, uh, Katie and I, we, we go to a, uh, a small group Bible study on Sunday nights. And last night, the, uh, the fellow who leads, leads the discussion was showing parallels between, uh, the life of Elijah and the gospel of Mark's, uh, descriptions of things that had the things that Christ does, uh, in the Gospel of Mark, but to, uh, sh showing that that Mark seems to be actually picking up language from Elijah's story. Oh, absolutely! And you know, and using it in 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 Christ's story, so that so that we see that you know, in in some ways, the story of Christ and Mark is uh, picking up on the story of Elijah, except it's you know, I I I, I imagine it is kind of the the fuller orchestral version later on at the climactic, you know, part of the film of what was earlier done and, you know, maybe a, a softer form with a solo piano. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. In an earlier scene. 
and and I had never noticed those parallels before. I'd never noticed that, you know, that Mark is basically arguing in the way he structures his story that here is the greatest of the prophets. And we can see this because he's he's walking in their footsteps, except he's leaving bigger footprints. <laughs> exactly. And, it, and it's funny, David, I'm actually teaching through Mark right now in adult Sunday school. And I mean, that's very similar to the approach I'm taking. So I'm, I'm glad to know someone else is doing similar things with it. And the other thing, you know, I, I mean, that you know, the, la- the last couplet there, uh, I mean, it, it seems like, you know, it's sort of just sort of a side swipe at astrology and on some level it is you know mm-hmm. but uh the fact that this is a book of stars again you know this idea again of the constellation it's a word that let's see here does the word constellation appear it doesn't appear but the idea is certainly shot through this poem you know the idea that uh it, it does uh fourth verse One, two, three. fourth line yeah, sorry, fourth line. Oh yeah, const- okay. So I'm, I I didn't just make up the word constellations. All right. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So you know uh, the fact that you know you do have connections that are somehow inherent in the text rather than again just arbitrarily arbitrary connect the dots sort of things. Well, and you notice he says that thy words do find me out and parallels bring. He can't be proof texting because mm-hmm. he's not doing any of the work anyway. This is something right. that's happening to him. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. And, and very often, I think that's my experience of it as I read. And I say, oh, I remember I remember this phrase or I remember this happening. Let me go back and look at that. And, uh, you know, it's it's more it's not I don't feel as if I'm arbitrary, collect, arbitrarily collecting dots. I feel as if. I'm I'm hearing for the first time or or seeing for the first time that in fact these stars do go together. It's like the first time, you know, when you're a kid and someone points out Orion, which for me is the only constellation that makes sense. <laughs> the Big Dipper and doesn't now, uh, you can take any set of four stars and turn them into a square. But <laughs> Orion, oh, it's there. You can see it. And once you He's see it, you've got a belt. Can, <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, once you look at Orion, you can't see it as I, I can't see it as separate stars anymore. Mm-hmm. It's now a picture up there. The stars you're a, are still you're there. You're a better man than I because I can't see constellations at all. Well, that's the only one I can do, so, you know, not that much better. <laughs> but I grew up in Atlanta where you can't see the sky anyway, so what does it matter? Uh, yeah, point take. <laughs> it's just a bunch of orange up there. <laughs> Haze. Uh, you can see, see the constellation of the moon. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> For now. Yeah. <laughs> Till they get some more lights up. Um, all right. Well, like I said, I, well, and actually, I mean, listeners, you heard the prologue to the episode, you know, that right now I have no sense of time, so I don't know how long or short we're going. Uh, but we are going to wrap things up nonetheless. Uh and to wrap up, among the many things that a poet like Herbert can teach us is that the life of devotion can engage the emotional soul without slipping into sentimentalism and engage the intellect without slipping into rationalism. Uh, since we only got to dig into three poems at length, uh, I'd like for each of you to pick one or two 
uh, Herbert poems that would be good for our readers to check out that we didn't get to talk about today. Uh, try to make your pitches, you know, lightning round sort of appeals. And David, lead us off if you could. Uh, the first one I'll point to is uh, The Windows. Very briefly, it's a it's a poem about how Christians are like are like are stained people, but we become like stained glass when God's light shines through us. Um, our perfections become part of the art. Um, and another one I think is uh, pretty phenomenal is one called A Wreath, in which uh, the poem is meant to be a wreath to put uh, to put on Christ's head. Uh, and the poem is literally itself woven and twisted. It loops back to where it starts again and not only rhymes, but has like crisscrossing chiasms and all this beautiful poetic effect. So, yeah, those are mine. All right, Michael, lightning round, go. I want to recommend briefly uh, Herbert's shape poems, which have largely fallen out of fashion. Um, in, in in modern in modern taste, but the two big ones are the altar and Easter wings. The altar is shaped like an altar. The Easter wings are shaped like wings. Uh, he is doing this, I suspect, for more than just cheap poetic effect. I ha- uh, I have to believe it has it's incarnational in some way in in making these poems into the shape of the things they're describing. He is in some sense in imbuing uh, matter with divinity. Uh, so yeah, the altar and Easter wings. Very good. I've I've got a couple that are actually right next to each other in the the collection that I've got. One of them is Holy Baptism too. It's also H Baptism. I like initial poems apparently, uh, and I like it for the same reason I like Dante's Purgatory so much. Not because I am a proponent of infant baptism, but because Holy Baptism too gets you inside the mentality of infant baptism in a way that. In its own right, by its own logic, it becomes compelling. Uh, The other one that I'll recommend is Sin 1, and it is a wonderful little psychological, spiritual insight about the measures that we take to protect ourselves from temptation and the futility of doing so because we are wretched down to our core. Mm. So, thank you guys for today's episode. Uh, I want to, yeah, I mean, thank David, thank Michael. Um, Michael, next week is going to be our big 50th episode, and what are we going to be talking about? We're going to go a little more high concept than usual, and we're finally going to discuss the Christian Humanist University, which I assume means we're going to uh, diagnose the ills of the modern university and set up some sort of uh, alternative. Yay! So we'll try not so, to disappear into ourselves next week. It'll be, uh, it'll be difficult. <laughs> so that CWC is our last host, episode of the year. Yes, yeah, so CWC host, we're finally giving you that episode you've been asking for. Uh, in the meantime, remember that you can find our writings at christianhumanist.org. Uh, you can email us at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. You can go over to iTunes, leave us a five-star rating or a short review. Either one you prefer, we dig it. Uh, Remember, folks, those of us out there are usually on the Internet. Tell your friends about us. Tell your neighbors about us. Let folks know about the Christian Humanist Project. Each week, we get some really cool people letting us know that they have discovered us and they are on the ride with us. Bring some more along. And in the meantime, until next week, 
On behalf of Michael Farmer and of David Grubbs, this is Nathan Gilmore saying, let your sin be strong, let your faith be stronger.